Hello, and welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. In April, the Board of Trustees appointed Edwin Denson as SWIB's next Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer. And in today's episode, we're going to get to know SWIB's new leader a little bit better and hear about what's in store under his tenure. Edwin joined SWIB in 2018 as the Managing Director of Asset and Risk Allocation, responsible for risk analysis, asset allocation, macroeconomic analysis, and fund-level investment strategies. After arriving at SWIB, Edwin worked to more than double the asset and risk allocation staff to help build out innovative investment strategies for the WRS. Today, he's using his wealth of experience in both public and private sector asset management to take SWIB forward and continue to deliver results for the Wisconsin Retirement System. The SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin Retirement System. Please make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your fellow WRS members and maybe leave us a review on iTunes so it's easier for other members to find this show. Before joining SWIB, Edwin was a managing director and head of strategic tilting at the $475 billion Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, where he and his team drove one of the three primary sources of investment return. Prior to that, he spent 13 years in asset allocation, currency, and risk management as a portfolio manager at William Blair & Company, a managing member at Singer Partners LLC, and a managing director and head of asset allocation at UBS Global Asset Management. Earlier in his career, he was an economist at Lehman Brothers, Primark Decision Economics, and Putnam Investments, and he also briefly managed a commodity trading advisor and quantitative equity strategy. Now, as Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at SWIB, he is leading the investment management for a public pension that consistently is among the top 10 largest in the country. Edwin, welcome to the SWIB podcast. Thanks to you, Chris and Dusty, for facilitating this opportunity to engage the Wisconsin Retirement System stakeholders. I'd like to just start out by saying it is an honor and a privilege to lead the State of Wisconsin Investment Board as the steward of the assets that will allow the retirement system to deliver on the mission of contributing to strong financial futures for its beneficiaries. Well, absolutely. And Edwin, we should really be saying welcome back because you have been our most frequent flyer as a podcast guest here. So it's good to see you again. And first of all, congratulations on your new role. But as Chris sort of rattled off your resume there, SWIB, it is obvious, is fortunate to have someone with your talent and experience that can take over after David Villa's passing earlier this year. It's become clear why the board wanted you to become SWIB's next executive director and CIO. In fact, in the last SWIB podcast episode, we heard from board chair David Stein about the process that the trustees went through before arriving at their decision. But can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted the role and how your transition has gone so far? Yeah, I'd be very happy to answer that. Let me start by saying that I'm very grateful for the trust that the SWIB Board of Trustees has shown in me by appointing me to be the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer. I'm honored and considered a privilege to be leading such a talented and dedicated staff. I'm continually impressed by their passion for their work and desire to succeed on behalf of the WRS participants. And that is one of the reasons why I was interested in taking this role. It was the opportunity to lead talented and dedicated people in fulfilling a very worthy mission. I'd like to then also point out culture and values as a very important part of the equation here. They are very important to us as they help us work together in fulfilling our mission and achieving the vision. 
Uh, David Villa, our dearly departed leader, emphasized that point to me even before I ever made the decision to join SWIB as head of asset and risk allocation back in 2018. I feel very lucky to have known him for almost 20 years at the time of his passing and to have worked with him very closely over the last few years. He was very eager to have someone with the skill and experience that I had in asset allocation and risk and capital allocation. But his final recruiting pitch to me was very simple. He said something along the lines of, you would be coming here to make a meaningful difference for the participants in the retirement system. What we could achieve together in terms of furthering SWIB's vision and mission will have much more of a direct positive impact on the outcomes for beneficiaries who rely on us for secure financial futures than where you sit now. I kind of cut him off at that point and said, you don't need to speak any further. I'm in. I'm going to join. And he was very, very happy. And now that I'm here and in the position that I'm in, I'm very eager to build on his vision and strategy and the direction for the agency that he had set out as we continue to create a world-class investment management organization. In terms of the board, going back to the question of the transition, they did a great job in terms of facilitating a smooth transition of executive leadership. We kept our management council, which is designed to advise the executive director, chief investment officer on a myriad of management issues intact in terms of both its membership and its purpose. Now, looking a little more at the transition and how I've been experiencing it personally, the new role has been very, very exciting, invigorating challenge for me. In my previous role as head of asset and risk allocation, I was familiar with our individual internal investment strategies as I was responsible for recommending and implementing the allocations to those strategies every year. And of course, I was very familiar with our asset allocation strategy as I was directly responsible for recommending and implementing it. So the transition to chief investment officer has been relatively easy given those familiarities. Now on the executive director side, there has been more of a learning curve as I become more familiar with the workings of the investment service functions that support our investment platform. But again, this is why we have a management council comprising the senior leadership of both investment services and investment management. It's to ensure that in areas where I may have relatively less familiarity or knowledge or subject matter expertise, that decisions that are made are informed by the collective knowledge and experience of our senior internal subject matter experts in the agency. So you're an economist by training. How does that impact how you look at some of the immediate issues facing the investment world and balancing that with the challenge of investing $140 billion over the long term on behalf of the WRS participants? Well, I'd like to start answering that by making a statement I think that all of our stakeholders should be familiar with, and that is that we are long-term investors and that we've worked very hard to implement a robust and sophisticated investment strategy designed to weather various market conditions. The reason this is so important is twofold, and I've learned both of these lessons from observing the economy, markets, and the behavior of investors for almost three decades. The first lesson is that it is very difficult to predict when a fully priced or overpriced market or asset class will have its comeuppance. De-risking too soon can have meaningful consequences in terms of long-term returns. I found in my experience that folks who get credit for predicting the last recession were either predicting it for a very long time and so didn't really have the timing down or have a track record for predicting recessions way more often than they actually occur. Many quantitative studies show that the beneficial long-run returns that risky assets like equities provide can be seriously impinged by being out of the market for a remarkably few number of days. 
For example, one study that I've seen recently suggested that by simply missing the 20 best days for the market from January 1999 through December of 2018, so that's almost a full 20-year period, your return from being invested in the S&P 500 would drop from about 5.6% a year to actually just below zero. So imagine that missing just 20 of the best days over a 20-year period would have a resulting return down in negative territory. The second lesson is that it's very hard to know in real time whether the economic or market regime that you have been in has shifted or changed. It's all clear in hindsight, of course, but it's hard to tell in real time. For example, are the increases in inflation that we are seeing now and are getting so much attention, are they temporary, as the Federal Reserve and many experts believe? Or is it the start of a sustained uptrend that looks something like the 1970s? Years from now, regardless of the outcome, many folks will recall having been certain about the outcome in real time. (laughs) Now, this is why it is important, both of these reasons, to have a robust, diversified asset allocation that can help us weather changes in market conditions without having to predict precisely when they occur or if they are occurring. For example, with headline CPI inflation registering a 5.4% increase in June relative to June of last year, which was the highest increase in many, many, many years, and which as of three months ago was wholly unexpected or unpredicted by anybody, you may wonder what assets we own that help mitigate that type of unexpected outcome. Well, the answer is that we hold a significant portion of Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, or TIPS, in our asset allocation. Part of the return that we receive from owning tips is a one-for-one accrual of actual realized inflation into the return. So that 5.4% increase in headline CPI inflation went right into the return of those securities. If the increase in inflation does prove to be more sustained, which most people don't expect, those securities will continue to benefit, as will assets like real estate that tend to keep up in inflationary environments. Now, of course, other assets we hold do not hold up relatively well, but they are assets that help us in other environments or other regimes. Another benefit we have in managing the asset allocation of the core trust fund is the flexibility that we've been given by the board of trustees in terms of deviating from the prescribed asset allocation when it looks like there are market opportunities. For example, when markets severely dislocated in March and April of last year as the pandemic forced a shutdown of the meaningful part of the economy, we were able to step in and purchase additional risky assets like equities and non-investment grade bonds at bargain prices. As those assets recovered, we unwound those purchases to get us back to our long-term core asset allocation. Now, if we want to fast forward to today and look at the current environment and ask what are we doing now in terms of the inflation scare that is currently afoot, I would say it is worth noting that in addition to holding those inflation-protected securities in our asset allocation, we are underweight relative to policy in nominal bonds. These typically do not do well when there are unanticipated increases in inflation. But again, to emphasize, we are underweight nominal bonds that can be harmed by unanticipated inflation, but continue to hold tips that are insulated from those unanticipated inflationary episodes. And we continue to hold those at our long-term policy weight. And then one last thing I would add to what we are doing is that in the prospective low return environment that we believe that we are currently in, we continue to enhance the infrastructure and technology that we need to support our active investment strategies because 
more than ever, extra return above and beyond what our asset allocation can deliver is very important in terms of reaching our overall long-term targets in terms of the return that we need to provide to the system. Prior to joining SWIB, you spent five years at the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, which is the largest pension plan in Canada. Are there things you learned from the Canadian plans that you saw worked well that have impacted your approach at SWIB? Yes, there are. But first, let me give the State of Wisconsin Investment Board a little bit of a plug. It was interesting that in the five years that I was there, they implemented some of the innovations in terms of their investment approach that when I arrived at SWIB, I found out that we'd already had for years. So I think we had actually made a couple of innovations before they did or implemented them, although they are seen as one of the leading pensions in the world in terms of innovation. Now, one of the things I did learn from my years there was the importance of infrastructure and technology in supporting the efforts of the investment teams. And we're moving in that direction decisively in terms of enhancing our own infrastructure and technology through what we call project center. And as a part of that project, which is a long-term plan, part of that is the implementation of a system called SimCore, which we are in the midst of installing and testing. Ultimately, the new infrastructure and technology will allow us to have more direct control over what our support systems can do for us, and that will aid us in supporting the ever-increasing sophistication our investment strategies will require to be able to deliver the returns that we need to make good on our promise to our beneficiaries. And let's remember, again, as I've referenced earlier, that the forward-looking return environment looks challenging. Yields are low at this point on government bonds. Spreads in credit sectors, both investment grade and non-investment grade, are pretty tight. And with equities looking fully priced at best, some would say overvalued, the asset allocation policy alone can't solve all of our problems. Our underlying investment managers and strategies to have all the tools available to them to responsibly take more risk in the endeavor of providing more return on our invested dollars. Well, again, I think SWIB is very fortunate to have you leading the agency. So again, congratulations on your new role. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the things you have on your plate now. First, let's talk about the WRS and the investment performance as we hit the halfway point of 2021. How have the trust funds performed through the first half of the year? Sure. So on preliminary figures, we don't have the final numbers yet, but on preliminary figures through June 30, we've done very well in absolute terms and okay in relative terms. The CTF delivered about 9.5% through June 30 as capital markets in general did very well. I'm very proud of the work of the investment teams as over the last year and a half in particular as they've had to negotiate not only quickly changing market conditions, but also quick changes in the work environment with the sudden move to work from home. And now, of course, we're slowly but surely winding that back as we pursue our return to office strategy. The teams all seem to be humming along, business as usual, in what I think is a very impressive show of resilience. You know, Edwin, it's funny because we launched the first episode of this podcast just about a year ago now. And a little compare and contrast to this year and last year, it's a night and day difference. The economy seems to be doing a lot better. Last year, we were still in the early stages of the pandemic and the country was basically shut down. Today, the economy is opening up. More people are definitely vaccinated and that certainly helps. And pandemic restrictions are being lifted. But even in better times, there are still concerns. And one of those concerns that seems to be grabbing a lot of the attention lately is inflation. You already alluded to it a little bit. 
it. We seem to be hearing two different stories in the media about inflation. On the one hand, we're hearing that it is looming and a cause for concern. But on the other hand, there are economists telling us that nothing to worry about too much. What are your thoughts? I'll start by reiterating what you just said, which is that the Federal Reserve itself and most experts believe that what we've seen so far is unsustainable and temporary given the nature of exactly where and what precise goods and services have seen a pop in prices. But of course, the risk is that it is not given the current and prospective generous and accommodative policy that the Fed is signaling and the seeming relative skittishness that the federal government may have if things turn down again. You know, very interesting fact is that in response to the recession that we saw early last year, which has now been actually officially marked and deemed by the National Bureau of Economic Research's Business Cycle Dating Committee as the shortest recession on record, having lasted two months, the fact of the matter is that not only the combination, but the speed and size of the response from both monetary and fiscal policymakers, rather than simply filling the pothole, as it were, in terms of making up for demand that fell away that otherwise would have happened, they actually did more than that. So it's almost like a pothole that's been overfilled. So it's the first time that we've been left with an economy that actually has a higher rate of economic activity than would have otherwise occurred without the recession. And with that kind of strong one-two punch support and the prospect that that may continue, there are reasons to think that there is a risk that bout of inflation that we're seeing is not temporary and could be more lasting and more sustained. We are engaged in our own internal investigation in this in terms of having a cross-division collaborative study that is in progress. So members of our macro research area and also members of our investment teams are working together and collaborating on that. And we will get the results of that probably in the next month or so. But ultimately, I have confidence that our robust asset allocation policy and the aforementioned flexibility that the board has given us to pivot in the shorter term will allow us to weather either outcome. Well, as long as we're doing headlines, let's talk about the Federal Reserve a little more. In June, the Federal Reserve brought forward the time frame for when it's next going to raise interest rates. However, the central bank did not indicate when it will begin cutting back on its aggressive bond buying program. From your seat in Madison, what are your thoughts on the actions that the Fed is taking? Well, this may sound a little ironic. I'll go back to the earlier reference to the fact that I started my career as an economist, and that's where my formal academic training is. And one of the earliest lessons I got in the industry was my job is not to talk about what I think the Fed should do or what a particular theory suggests that they should do, but rather the job is to predict what they will do. And I think in that context... For me, and again, this may seem a little ironic, I don't pay attention to what they're saying about when they're going to be increasing rates or stop the bond repurchases or shut down some of the special facilities they'd set up in response to the crisis. I think the principle to keep in mind is that regardless of what we think, this current Fed has demonstrated that it will not upset the apple cart. Any action they take that looks like it's causing either the economy or capital markets severe indigestion will be walked back. So any elements like the bond repurchase program, winding down of special facilities, or raising the Fed funds rate will only happen when the economy is strong enough on its own to move forward without the support from those mechanisms. 
So we all know that investors have to keep an eye on a variety of trends. We just talked about a couple of them. What are some of the other key issues you and your staff are watching closely as we head into the second half of the year? Well, actually, Chris, there I would say that there isn't anything more in terms of the economic environment or potential evolution of the economy or capital markets that I'm really concerned about. It's more for me in the second half of the year, concentrating on our investment structure and furthering us along in terms of setting us up to win regardless of the either capital market or economic regime that ends up occurring. And we have to have a strategy for setting us up for success in a low return environment. That's really my concern. With government bond yields down at around 1.3% on the 10-year, credit spreads as narrow as they are, and equities fully priced at the most charitable description I think that you could give, it really looks like regardless of the asset allocation, we are up for a challenge here. And our strategy is just continuation of the direction that David Villa was pushing is to continue to have more of our assets run actively rather than passively, to do more in-house where appropriate because it is less expensive and more cost-effective, again, just where appropriate, and to focus our risk-taking on where we have relatively higher confidence. So it's no change in strategy from David's vision. He had been on a push in the two or three years before I arrived to get more active risk into the overall portfolio. Again, recognizing that there's only so much that the capital markets can provide us, only so much that a sophisticated and diversified asset allocation can give us. I'd like to turn just a little bit more and learn some more about you now. Of course, your entire career has been spent on the investment side of the business, but now as the executive director, you've got a whole new set of responsibilities. As a, for instance, you are now responsible for the management of SWIB's 230 employees. How are you thinking right now about the leadership and the people management side of the job at SWIB? I'm trying to apply actually the same leadership style that I had on the investment side to the non-investment side, and that is to be less directing other than reinforcing our mission and values and our vision and articulating the agreed upon objectives that help us get there. And rather than direct, see myself as more of an enabler and a supporter that helps try to set folks up for success and set them up to win. And again, with the great support I've gotten from the Management Council and with the work that we've done on values and culture and the particular values that we've landed on, our staff, led by a group of culture champions, landed on excellence, innovation, integrity, collaboration, and of course, our most important asset, our people, as our core values. This didn't come from the top down. This percolated up from staff. I think that if we all live those that dovetails nicely with an environment where leadership, again, is looking rather than to direct or micromanage, to rather enable and support and set our folks up for success. I can't make this work myself. And that was true even when I ran a team of just six people earlier in my career. I can't do it myself. I need everybody to contribute, to be set up to win, and to be able to work together in order for us to achieve those objectives. Who are some of the people in your life and your career that have helped shape and guide you as you developed into the leader you are today? Well, I can name three folks. Pierre Ellis was a very good mentor that I had in my first job at Lehman Brothers, although I did not directly report to him. He'd been in the industry for about 20 years. And what he showed me actually was the high value there is in mentorship. 
and in high-touch mentorship. And I don't mean that he spent hours with me every week, but at the appropriate times, we would have a good 30 or 45-minute discussion where he's really able to impart to me all of the tricks to the trade, not only in terms of specific details of how to execute certain functions, but also how to just think about certain things. Moving on to the next person I'd like to name, Jonathan Francis. He was my manager when I was at Putnam Investments, and he was just a great mentor, but also somebody who brought a wealth of experience in terms of dealing with change and really helped me with that. He really taught me that you cannot worry about the things that are out of your control. All you can do is continue to do the best job that you can, service the people who you are meant to service, because the worst thing you could do is allow the uncertainty that you're facing, have you stopped doing your job at the excellent and high level that you do execute at, because that will ensure that we don't end up having a place within this institution. So it's the important of mentorship there, and that's as a leader, try to, again, set up an environment where folks feel that part of their responsibility as a manager is to mentor, is to not simply direct, but also advise. And then finally, in terms of management, Brian Singer, who I had worked either for directly or indirectly for about 13 years, that spanned the UBS Global Asset Management, Singer Partner, William Blair days, that was all, in essence, working, again, for Brian, either directly or indirectly. And it was a real lesson in leadership. And The lesson was learned one day when I was talking to him about our investment portfolio. And he, for the first time, confided in me that the investment portfolio we had was never the one that he would have. He described himself as merely being somebody who was refereeing and enforcing the investment process, but allowing us to make the decisions. And as long as those decisions were within the range or realm of reasonableness, he never said no. And his rationale for that was twofold. One was, well, if I'm making all the decisions, why would I need you? Which was pretty interesting. But the other was, I think, more important, which is if I'm hovering over you, questioning every decision and altering every strategy that you propose to fit exactly the way I would do it or the size that I would do it in, then I would be interfering with your mojo. I fear that your actual ability to add value would either be diminished or completely erased if I was, in fact, making the decision. So the best way to allow your investment skill to come up and come through is for me to manage the process to make sure that the outcomes are reasonable, but to not tell you exactly what to do. And again, that's, I think, dovetails with my description of trying to be an enabler, a supporter, setting people up for success laying out the objectives, but then letting people do their thing, not ruining their mojo. Well, those are some great lessons from some folks who sound like great role models. And you had earlier outlined the core values at SWIB, the excellence, innovation, integrity, collaboration, and people. And of course, what I think is one of the really cool things about this podcast is we get to learn more about the people behind the plan at SWIB. It's widely recognized as one of the most well-run pension funds in the world. And the reason for that, at the end of the day, is the people. So let's learn a little bit more about Edwin Denson, the person, not the administrator. And for starters, what do you do to unwind and relax? I understand you have a little bit of a green thumb. Yes, that's true. Well, I'll start out by saying that these days I don't have a lot of free time. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, however, when I do have a chance to unwind and want some kind of activity where I'm doing something, but it isn't too taxing, I do maintain all of the indoor plants that we have in our sunroom. My wife refers to it as the conservatory because it has so many plants in it. And of course, it does take time and effort to number one, keep things alive, but number two, keep them looking good, the pruning and all of that. And then also I maintain a couple of freshwater aquariums and it's kind of the same idea. There is care and tending that's needed to keep them operating at peak efficiency and to keep the plants that are in the aquarium and the fish happy. But again, I would relate this almost to my management style. It dovetails nicely. One of the worst things you can do with plants is over tend, over care, too much watering, too much pruning, too much worrying. Same thing with an aquarium feeding them too much, moving things around, always trying to make little adjustments. It usually ends in disaster. So again, there what I'm simply trying to do is make sure that the environment is supportive and the best one for thriving, whether it's the plants in the sunroom or whether it's the fish or whether it's the plants in the aquarium, and then let them do their thing and they tend to thrive and do very well. Maybe that's what I'm doing wrong because I always have utmost respect for anybody that can keep plants alive only because I've failed so thoroughly and repeatedly in my attempts at tending a garden. Uh, what about music? I understand that you're also a big music guy with a broad range of tastes. Yeah, it's very wide range of music genres that I enjoy. So anything from classic rock to, I no longer know what they call the early 90s music, whether it's grunge or alternative rock to classical music. If I had to name an example of each I think in terms of classic rock, the album, because back in those days there were albums that I listened to the most, so that must have been the one I enjoyed the most, was The Who Live at Leeds. And in the mid-90s, I still listened to Melancholy and Infinite Sadness by the Smashing Pumpkins quite often. I also, in college, developed a deep appreciation for jazz, having taken the history of jazz as a course. It just really opened my eyes to the evolution of that music form from the 1920s, kind of big band sound through the late 60s, and big fan of the modern jazz quartet. And then if we look at classical music and opera, that's something I've actually paid more attention to more recently, say the last 10 or 15 years. And there I've recently found a live recording of Mozart's Requiem with full choral, and it's just amazing. And I find that most people are turned on or turned off by certain genres, but I think that's just because they weren't listening to the right thing. And I find that in any of these genres, you can find pieces that are equally as appealing from an emotional standpoint. Teachers make up a large portion of the participants in the WRS. I understand you have a family member who is a teacher in Illinois. My sister is a public school teacher in Chicago and has been for her entire working life. And I can say now that she reads more and more about what I'm actually doing for a living and what the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and the Wisconsin Retirement System is all about, I can say that she's very jealous about the fully funded status, the wisdom and intelligence shown in the mere design of the whole scheme from its inception and the way that we manage the funds. You know, for the first time, she did confide in me that although she's got a full pension supposedly waiting for her there down in Illinois, that she's anxious about it because there's so much of it is unfunded. You just never know what the political wins will be 10 to 20 years from now when those bills come due and it's time to start paying those benefits that have been promised. And again, she's very jealous that the teachers here in Wisconsin, along with the other public sector workers and other participants in the system, do not have any of that anxiety. 
Well, it's certainly one of the great joys to bring that sort of peace of mind to public servants in Wisconsin and for them to know that they have public servants like you working on their behalf. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us and bring us up to speed. Thanks, Edwin, for joining us today. It was a great discussion. Edwin Denson, the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at SWIB. Thanks a lot. I just want to thank Chris, you, and Dusty again for facilitating this opportunity for me to engage with our stakeholders. And again, it's an honor and privilege to lead SWIB as a steward of the assets. There are great things to come as we continue on the path David Via set out for us 15 years ago. And thank you for listening to the SWIB podcast. We will be bringing you updates on a regular basis, so make sure to take a moment and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, remember to follow SWIB on LinkedIn or subscribe to our email list for more information. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com, with editing by Mackie McCunda and additional production by Larry Kilgore III. So thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.